was not the accidental death the authorities declared it. And our town still hadn't recovered. Whereas before we followed one hearse to the cemetery, this year three coffins were carried out together after a joint service, one draped with an American flag and two smaller unadorned ones behind. To this day I can hear the bagpipes playing their dirge. Family friends and Christopher's inseparable band of buddies, Bib, Jimmy, Lair, Charlie Granger, my favorite, even the brooding Roy Scholar, who slipped out back to smoke, came over to our rambling farmhouse afterward, and everyone ate from a smorgasbord and drank mulled cider and spoke in low, shocked voices. As for myself, I hid upstairs. I felt guilty, bereft, also angry. If he hadn't so simply ignored me, things might have turned out different. I barricaded my door that night and spent hours memorizing my brother's narrow, freckled face, his edgy voice, his gawky mannerisms, his lame jokes, the Christopherness of him, so I could hold him as long as possible in the decaying cradle of memory. Instead of sleeping in my bed that night, I lay fitful on the floor, twisting around in my funeral clothes, hugging my doll Millicent, who was my first confidant and imaginary little sister. Why, I thought, should a grieving sibling sleep comfortably when her brother was stuck inside a dark box all alone? I felt hopeless, deeply discouraged. I didn't want my brother to be dead. I didn't want to be a witch. I had no interest in knowing ever again what might happen in this world before it did. My foresight was one thing, but to shift the flow of my brother's will so it might not collide with his fate was as impossible as reaching out to grab one of those falling stars, hold it in my palm, and blow it out. Still would be beyond me had he survived when a woman fell asleep at the wheel and crossed lanes, flying head-on into the Gilchrist's car under a new moon, which is to say, no moon at all. My mother, for all her Christian religion, sank into a numb depression and stayed there for a long time. When I called her mom, she only sometimes answered. More often, she just looked blankly right through me. Since she paid more attention to me when I addressed her by her first name, Rosalie, it became a habit that stuck. She took a year off from her job as a science teacher and spent days doing volunteer work for the church. None of her good deeds, from serving meals at a homeless shelter to clerking in the United Methodist thrift shop, buoyed her spirits. Though I didn't want to believe it, some days I sensed she blamed Christopher's death on me. This she would have denied if asked. I didn't but it was there in a random gesture, a quiet phrase, a clouded glance. I do know she prayed for me. She told me as much, but I'm glad she prayed in silence. Looking back, I see that I was trying my best to breathe. If it hadn't been for Christopher's death, I probably would not have been raised by my father like I was. In Rosalie's grieving absence, my dad and I reinvented our kinship. 
He was far too wise to bury his own sorrow by attempting to transform me into some factitious son, tomboy, though I admittedly and perhaps inevitably was, high-spirited and gregarious, a magnet to a constant stream of friends. My brother had been nothing like his introverted sister, Cassandra, who more often than not kept her own company. Nep did his level best not to Christopherize me, nor did I feel compelled to try to make my father into an older brother figure. Instead, we began hanging out together, a fond parent and his punk kid. He drove me to school and picked me up. Together we made three-bean chili and shepherd's pie for dinners on the nights when Rosalie arrived home late. We listened avidly to his old jazz records, shunning the 70s pop music that filled the airwaves. Weekends, I sat on a tall stool next to him in his repair shop.